Hello and welcome to today's VJ Hemong podcast. We are a global open access video journal bringing you the latest in hematological oncology. This podcast series will feature selected sessions from the 20th International Workshop on Non-Hodgkin Lymphoma, which was held in Miami, Florida, and brought together leading experts who discuss the latest in the field. In this podcast, you will hear from John Gribben, Laurie Sen, Andrew Davies, and Sven DeVos, who discuss novel therapies in non-Hodgkin lymphoma, drawing focus on the role of antibody drug conjugates. Okay, welcome again to the 20th International Workshop for Non-Hodgkin's Lymphoma here in Miami. Um, Again, this afternoon, we've had what's very traditional at these meetings is a session looking at novel agents. And this afternoon, in a session put together by my colleague Laurie Sen, we focused initially on antibody drug conjugates, which we're going to talk a little bit about here. I'm joined today by three of the presenters, um, Sven DeVos from UCLA, who uh, is going to talk about what one of the compounds this afternoon, Laurie Sen, of course, who's on the organizing committee from Vancouver and needs no introduction, and Andy Davis from Southampton in England. So we heard a whole variety of talks, one after the other, all looking at different antibody targeted therapies, all often carrying different payloads, but with the same kind of approach of delivering the agent in. Some of these, of course, are already established and already part of an algorithm and part of established multi, you know, drug compounds. And I'll come back and talk about that in a moment. Uh, Laurie is an obvious place to start. All the way through to agents which are in early phase drug one development to compounds, Andy, that were in development what looked like pauses have been held for a whole variety of different reasons. Um, let, let, me, let me start with you then, Laurie, in terms of, um, uh, you know, um, uh, polituzumab vedotin, which of course, as you very rightly put out, is you know, the first compound we've seen actually moving the algorithmic approach to be talking about moving beyond our CHOP and diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. So what, what's your take of where we are now? And maybe you can just comment also on the question you made about is our polar chip now the standard of care for mm -hmm. diffuse large B-cell lymphoma? Yeah, so, so Polarix is the first clinical trial in DLBCL that really has met its primary endpoint, I should say, the first large randomized phase three, introducing a novel agent into the frontline setting for DLBCL. And it did meet its primary endpoint, which was progression-free survival. Um, but there's you know, been a lot of controversy around it, I think, because uh, number one, it, there was no overall, overall survival advantage, and we historically have seen PFS and OS very much linked in DLBCL, so there was that expectation that PFS should lead to OS. But I think we'd all admit now that there are so many downstream opportunities for these patients, many of which have durable benefit and maybe even secondary chance of cure, that the days of having the close link between PFS and OS are not there. But I would argue that, you know, as a clinician, I still think our goal is to increase the cure rate in the frontline setting. And, you know, I think the data shows now with three-year follow-up, most recently at ASH, that those curves showing the difference in progression-free survival is sustained for at least up to three years. So that to me is an improvement in the cure rate with the addition of the polituzumab. The controversial aspect, I think, is the forest plot that looked at a number of subgroups 
many of which were not stratified within the clinical trial. So it really is just a univariate look. And, you know, people are trying to pull out maybe subgroups that might preferentially benefit. Maybe we can ration what we know is an expensive drug compared to just giving people RCHOP. But I think, you know, the difference is that in this scenario, the toxicity is, is really quite comparable between the arms. So, you know, um, and I, I think that it's hard to put too much weight on those underpowered subgroup analyses that certainly aren't controlled for the multitude of factors that could impact outcome. On that, you kind of highlighted one of those subgroup analyses, which is that elderly patient group in which there did appear to be a particular advantage. Now, we got questions from the audience about was that associated with additional increased toxicity. I would kind of argue that it's, the, it's in the elderly group that you have less you know, ways to be able to salvage those patients back and that maybe that is the subgroup analysis in whom getting to a curative approach is actually more important and that to my mind that would be worth and it's some additional short-term pain to get that longer-term gain. Mm -hmm. I fully agree. So there was a suggestion actually from the forest plot that, you know, that the elderly were not disadvantaged, if anything, might actually preferentially benefit. But so I thought it was an important subgroup for um, for further analysis. And now we have a subgroup analysis that's been presented formally and we'll see a manuscript soon. But it, it certainly appears to the, the elderly population definitely benefits as well, if not even somewhat better. And I, I think that, you know, the toxicities, again, even in that group are fairly comparable. I mean, what we pointed out is that across the whole group and within the elderly group, there's a higher rate of febrile neutropenia, maybe a higher rate of low-grade infection. Those are short-term toxicities that in general we can manage, but there wasn't a heightened risk of mortality because of the treatment and certainly not that was offsetting the outcome. Sure. Now, of course, the other question you raised, and I'm going to, I'm going to come back to you on this one because you raised some issues here at the panel discussion about is our polar chip the new standard of care? And of course, it isn't. It's the standard of care for a subgroup of the patients, really, at the moment, isn't it? Um, but um, the question then becomes, if we're going to be doing randomized clinical trials, is our new benchmark against our polar chip or should it be still against our CHOP? And Andy, you raised some interesting concepts in terms of how we the ethical issues about how you kind of randomize a patient to receive our CHOP when our polar chip would be an approved indication for that patient. So I think this is really important that we try and have this discussion because we've got many frontline trials that are either already open or, or in development asking the question about a novel intervention with a CHOP-like combination against our CHOP chemotherapy. And so of course, you know, many territories have really adopted at a very high penetration level polar R chip mm -hmm. in the frontline DLBCL. And I think trying to randomize a patient into a study where RCHOP is the standard of care then raises some significant dilemmas for the investigator and, and a, a difficult conversation with the patient. I'm not saying that RCHOP chemotherapy is no longer an acceptable standard of care, and I think polar RCHIP is just another choice as a standard of care, but it does make it very difficult when we're thinking about what our control arm is going to be. And I think that's also really important in terms of future-proofing 
the studies, as we see even perhaps even greater penetration of polar hardship in the years to come in, in very many territories where they're struggling a little bit with the funding approvals. Um, I, I think it's going to be very difficult to have some studies that have compared with R-TROP chemotherapy when they get their readout and some studies that have compared with polar hardship. And it, it makes the, the, the landscape really quite difficult for us. Sure. Now Sven, moving on to, you, you kind of talked about an agent targeting ROAR1, which of course we've seen a lot of interest in as a potential compound, particularly sought first in CLL, but um, now across B-cell malignancies. Also raised uh, an issue that came across lots of the discussions we're having today about levels of expression on the target and is it something that we look at and is that a requirement to come into the study and we saw in many of your studies across, certainly across different histologies that it was all comers and then potentially a retrospective look is is that the right way for us to go forward or is that is it by looking at it in this way that we begin to understand they don't always work in exactly the way that we thought what, what are your thoughts so well, one is a new target mm. to go after in oncology. It's a very interesting target because it's only expressed in normal life during amyogenesis mm. and not anymore. So it is expressed in the vast majority of malignancies, including hematological malignancies, and the more aggressive and faster growing these are, the higher the expression is. So I think it's important initially to, to allow all comrades to mm. come into the trial and then learn uh, what the level of expression in, in relation to response uh, might be. There isn't indirect <clears throat> link uh, right now in, in a more aggressive, more fast-growing uh, lymphomas um, responding better mm -hmm. and low-grade lymphomas uh, responding poorly. But I uh, also would like to see the correlation with expression. And if you learn something from that uh, to uh, select patients. What was quite common in a whole variety of compounds we heard this afternoon was that there was a level, so there were responders and non-responders, which of course raises in interesting concepts, but the, the response rate was often quite similar from compound to compound. Working the premise that many of these compounds are or will be in the future approved, how do you think we're going to kind of algorithmically think about the series in which we offer these? Or do you think almost all of them, as we've done for, for polituzumab, are going to land up being used as part of a combination and moving more and more frontline. And I think Laurie, you raised the issue. We can't just have we can't have our polar Zolo <laughs> something chip. Um, you know, we can't just keep adding and adding and adding to our algorithm. So how do you think we're gonna be thinking about where these compounds fit into our algorithm? Yeah, it's a real challenge. I mean, we heard uh, I guess a lot of individual compounds, lots of great science behind them. You know, the one thing that I'm being challenged by right now is that also if you're doing single arm studies of these single arm drugs, the bar has changed, right? Mm -hmm. The kinds of patients we're putting on these trials are not the kinds of patients we put on even five years ago. So I have, you know, many trials are proposed and they say, you know, we're trying to sort of test this in the unmet need of third line DLBCL. And, you know, you could argue that most third-line DLBCL patients are not going on tri trials of novel compounds anymore. They have a series of options, and now we're enrolling patients in their fifth line and, and beyond. So what is the bar now that gives you that signal activity in those fifth-line and sixth-line patients that makes you want to move a drug forward? And it's unlikely that you know, any of these drugs are going to have a high level of success as single agents. So we're going to want to combine them, but it does get 
you know, complicated when you think about the permutations and combinations and the number of options that we have. I think it's going to be very challenging moving forward. And, and John, I think part of this is also about how the target antigen is going to be modulated mm. through the clinical course of the disease, and perhaps how prior therapies that you may have been exposed to may modify that. You know, we already know the story about loss of CD19 mm. in patients who had previous CAR-T exposure. It doesn't look from the preliminary data that patients who had a, a long CAR-T, which is an ATC directed CD19, a different epitope may may not lose the CD19 expression yeah, so progression. Yeah, concept so, as to why that should be. Isn't absolutely. It? Yeah. So I think this is going to be a really important story in terms of of our evolution of, of sequencing. Now, the other session we had within the session this afternoon was this industry uh, sponsored, not industry sponsored, uh, in, industry perspective on some of the things that are happening. And of course, what we heard from that industry panel this afternoon is, of course, the FDA is moving the moving the, the goalposts here in terms of exactly how we, we get it. And I didn't hear anything today that made me comfortable to think that there's going to be an easier path to approval for many of these compounds. And in fact, what we did hear was that um, the move towards looking for overall survival um, advantage, which of course is the goal of what we all want to do in our clinical trial developments, but particularly in heme malignancies where we've got multiple lines of therapy uh, being able to be offered, it's very difficult to see if that's going to become a goal that needs to be required for registration. Is that too high a goal for us to see any of these compounds ever make it through in the future? Sven, let's come to you. On it's, I mean, it's a very high... As, as the American on the panel. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, Recognisable by my accent. Um, <laughs> Clearly, in, in trials that are randomized, where crossovers are allowed, you, you basically design the trial against actually uh, necessarily seeing a survival advantage. So therefore, I think that that, that should not, I think, be overemphasized uh, in, in these aggressive lymphoma trials. The trouble is, of course, that's what the FDA is looking for. Um, it was interesting to see the industry perspectives on the panel look at how they are creatively trying to come up with ways, but in the end, they're gonna to have to sit down with the regulators and find out whether their approaches are going to be acceptable to the agency. And, um, but there is the potential that with all the best intentions in the world, that um, we may have actually shot ourselves in the foot here in terms of what it is we're looking to achieve for our patients. Andy? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think we, we should be concerned that perhaps we may slow the pace of development down. You know, we've had this sort of excess of accelerated approvals, mm. and now we've seen some backward stepping on that because some of these agents that were approved under this process actually haven't proven themselves in the phase three setting or the safety signal hasn't really been confirmed. Mm. Uh, and anyway, we're seeing a decrease in the number of, of agents that are getting accelerated approval. So I think that this we will see as a result of this, perhaps some slowing of the pace of of drugs and therefore access to our patients, mm. which uh, I think we're going to have to be really, you know, really mindful. I think one of the commentators said, look, you know, there's this big focus now from the agency towards overall survival. The pendulum has really swung from one to the other, and we hope that that may well move back in the future to somewhere that's uh, that that really gives us a proof of efficacy and safety, but actually is able to deliver these new agents in a timely way for our patients. Okay, so there you have it. That's the end of day one uh, from uh, IWHL today. We look forward to 
being able to see all of you tomorrow for what I think looks like a very exciting day too. And we'll be posting more on what we find from the sessions uh, following this one. So thank you very much for your attention and thank you very much to the panel for joining me today. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at VJ Hemonk and subscribe to VJ Hemonk Podcasts on Spotify, Apple and Podbean. Until next time.